Welcome to 16 Minutes, I'm Zorin. We have two brief segments in today's episode, including news and analysis of a widespread hack of Microsoft Exchange servers across the country and the dramatic and unusual steps the FBI took in response. But first, the nationwide pause in the Johnson & Johnson COVID vaccine. Federal health officials this week revealed that six women who received the vaccine had developed rare and severe blood clots in the brain, in one case fatally. Even more recently, a panel of expert advisors to the Centers for Disease Control determined that they needed more time to assess the risk of the drug, which was approved by the FDA under Emergency Use Authorization, or EUA. The context here is that about 7 million people have received the one-shot J&J vaccine in the U.S., which is about 5% of the vaccinations nationwide. The two-shot Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, which received earlier EUA approval, make up the bulk of U.S. vaccinations. Those two vaccines are mRNA vaccines, and there has been no such blood disorder findings linked to them. So there are a lot of headlines, a lot of conjecture, and a lot of understandable concern about the safety of the J&J vaccine. In this show, we'll try to separate what's hype and what's real, including the clinical facts about the six J&J cases, the incidence rate, and what the J&J vaccine shares with the AstraZeneca vaccine, which has been halted or limited in Europe and elsewhere over similar blood clot concerns. You can find all of our ongoing vaccines coverage at a16z.com slash vaccines. To help us make sense of this, we turn to our experts on the bio team at A16Z. Joining us is general partner Jorge Conde, who has been in all of our vaccine episodes and previously led strategy and product for a pharmaceuticals company. And general partner Vinita Agarwala, who is also a practicing clinician at Stanford Hospital and recently joined us on 16 Minutes to analyze the vaccine rollout in the US. We start with the most recent news, What options did federal officials have before them and what action did they take? The CDC and the FDA had in front of them a couple different options. They could have withdrawn the EUA entirely and made it impossible to administer the vaccine. They could have recommended a change in the guidelines for who should receive the vaccine. And then a third option is what they chose to do. They're taking the time to review more data to actually understand the incidence of this rare side effect and to develop better guidelines for how to detect, manage, and prevent the occurrence of this side effect, signaling that there might be another week to 10 days before they lift the recommendation of the pause. So they didn't withdraw the EUA entirely for the J&J vaccine, but they have taken the step of continuing to keep it on pause. So what does this tell us about the actual health risks and what should people really take from this? I would say that, you know, the concept of a pause versus removing an emergency use authorization, like that is not a very obvious and clear distinction, I would say, to the general public. So it's understandable that people would be at minimum curious, if not concerned about what the implications of this pause are. With vaccines, there is a very high hurdle because you are giving something to people that are otherwise healthy. Right. So it's not that you're treating a disease, you're trying to prevent something from happening. And so the hurdle for safety needs to be quite high, which is, of course, what everyone is aiming to better understand. Okay. So we have six people, women between the ages of 18 and 49, who develop these blood clots. From a clinical perspective, what do we know about this side effect? And what does that tell us about the overall risk? The nuance of what this rare side effect actually is Mm -hmm. is important to understand. It's not just a clot. It's not a typical DVT or deep venous thrombosis. It's specifically a central venous sinus thrombosis, which is a particular, more severe intracranial complication. And moreover, it was associated in all of these women with thrombocytopenia or low platelet count. 
And beyond that, in these same women, um, and this is true for the AstraZeneca vaccine complications as well, they were found to have antiplatelet-4 antibodies, which mimics the clinical syndrome called autoimmune heparin-induced thrombocytopenia for reasons we don't understand because they didn't get heparin. They got a vaccine. But there's something about either the adenoviral structure or some other component of the vaccine that is producing a clinical syndrome that looks awfully like heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, which is a whole different beast to manage clinically than your typical leg clot after getting on a flight or something like that. And even though there have been a lot of statistics arguing, well, the rate of even central venous sinus thrombosis in the general population is such and such, and maybe that's comparable or, or even higher in some segments of the population, compared to this particular absolute risk that's been observed so far. Number one, we don't know the real absolute risk. Number two, we don't know the right denominator. Number three, these events have happened all in a very short time period after the vaccine. And number four, none of these events, no cases of CVST plus thrombocytopenia have been observed in millions of people who got the mRNA vaccines. So no matter what you kind of say about general risk, like this particular syndrome, you know, we haven't seen it at least with the alternative vaccines. So we're not quite at causality yet, but we're also not at, hey, this is just a general you know, phenomenon that could happen in anybody. And I think what's disturbed me a little bit about some of the commentary that I've seen flying around over the last few days is this notion that like, this is so rare that nobody should even stop to think about it. That's just not how humans make decisions. Okay, so let's pick up on that key point and talk about how people should balance all these facts and weigh these risks So we have six cases that prompted the decision to pause the vaccine out of the 7 million or so people who have received it. And there's actually eight cases now as two more have been added since. But help us put these numbers into context. Is this a typical percentage of adverse reactions for vaccines at this scale? It's not unusual for adverse events to be observed following clinical trials. I mean, if you think about it, clinical trials have been tested in, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of people. At this point, we have administered vaccines to on the order of tens of millions of people. So, you know, you're unlikely to see a one in a million event in a clinical trial where you're only testing in thousands or tens of thousands of people. The key, once you identify an adverse event, is to better understand what exactly is the event, who's at risk, and what is the best way to mitigate or intervene. And that's where we are right now, is in trying to tease all of that apart. Okay, so officials are in this seven to 10 day pause period. What steps are being taken right now as they try to better understand these incidents? Like, how are they going about this? I think they're looking to find out the real incidence rate or find a better way of getting confidence around what we think it actually is. Find out the denominator of who is actually an at-risk population, right? A lot of people have divided six by 6.8 million and said, well, that's the incidence rate. But is it really? Because maybe the right denominator is women in a certain age group or some other construct that we don't know yet about their medical history or the fact that they were at risk for some reason of developing this side effect. I think there is going to be a reanalysis and potentially a scrub of historical data of everybody, both in the trial context and post-trial, who's gotten the J&J vaccine. So bottom line, what should people take away from this in the way they think about this particular vaccine? This is a very, very hard decision 
and a very, very nuanced, complicated set of factors that go into it. So don't believe the headlines, the tweets that say like there's an obvious choice here. There just isn't, especially not in the U.S. when we have other vaccine options. All healthcare decisions ultimately boil down to risk and benefit and weighing them in this particular context is very, very hard. We don't understand the risk yet and the benefit has to be viewed as to some extent relative benefit to other vaccine options. And so that combination is is just hard. And we need to get comfortable with allowing agencies whose job it is to do this, to take the time to process and calculate and determine and guide us on what age-specific, gender-specific, condition-specific risks are for us to be able to make this risk-benefit decision. The fact that the agencies, the government, has decided to take a pause to better understand these rare but serious events is evidence that the system is working, that we are rolling out in a meaningful way, a way to protect the population in this country from this virus and that we are thinking through the potential risks among the benefits as thoughtfully and carefully as we can. Jorge and Vinita, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. In our next segment, we're talking about enterprise security and a recent hack that got the federal government involved. The Department of Justice this week announced that the FBI, after getting court authorization, had removed malicious code from hundreds of computers running on-premises versions of Microsoft Exchange server software used to provide email services. The servers were located in Texas, Massachusetts, and several southern and midwestern states and affected some 60,000 customers. The government's action was in response to attacks in January and February by what the government said were multiple hacking groups. In March, Microsoft had announced the initial hack and released detection tools and patches to help owners of the compromised computers. But this week's announcement revealed that the FBI had taken the additional step of removing the malicious code, in this case, web shells that enable remote administration from computers that had not mitigated the risk. Microsoft has associated the hackers with state-sponsored actors in China. To help us understand what's behind this unusual action and figure out where it fits into larger trends of enterprise security and even national security, our expert today is Joel De La Garza, an A16Z partner who frequently joins us to talk about information security issues, including on our recent 16 Minutes Anatomy of a Hack episode on the SolarWinds hack. Joel starts off by recapping what the hackers did and who they targeted. There was this massive hacking campaign and thousands of Microsoft Exchange servers across the internet were hacked. These are probably medium-sized businesses, you know, a couple thousand employees, at first by this one group. And then as this vulnerability became public, Microsoft released patches, people started talking about it. Other groups were able to figure out the vulnerability or get access to the exploit. And so then you had the emergence of several different organizations that were hacking all these different Microsoft Exchange servers. So these hackers get in and they install web shells. Yeah, the easiest way to think about web shell is like it's a backdoor that gives you the ability to access the computer remotely. The whole purpose of these backdoors is to give an attacker persistent access to a network or a server. It would also give them the ability to take over that server and then use that server to compromise the company's other servers. And so, you know, these are particularly damaging bits of software. They usually give the attacker full control and they put them in very prime positions where they can not just collect data from that server, but also act on expanded intent and collect more data. So they install these web shells. Microsoft becomes aware of this, right? And they announce it. And at some point, the government gets involved. So what happens then? 
And then the FBI went around finding servers that had been hacked and removing the backdoor or the web shell from those servers. So essentially accessing computers that belong to other people, not the government, and then removing those backdoors or web shells. So let's separate what's hype and what's real here. So the government did this without the knowledge of the people whose computers were compromised. They're now reaching out to the people whose computers were affected and saying, hey, guess what? We did this for you. So how unusual is that for the government or any third party to access people's personal computers and servers without their knowledge to stop hacking activity? So this is not a new discussion. For very many years, well-intentioned people on the internet have wanted to go and fix things that were broken. But for the longest time, the advice you would get from law enforcement or from the U.S. attorney's offices would be, you cannot access hacked equipment if it does not belong to you. Because if you do any damages, you would therefore be subject to criminal charges under the Computer Fraud and Misuse Act. It's been kind of a contentious debate. This has been going on since the 80s, probably, maybe the late, early 90s. You know, it had always been a very clear line that you don't do these sorts of things. And so this just feels like something that's new. It feels like something where we need to kind of figure out the limits and the process. The government actually taking this step and doing this activity just really kind of blows away sort of the modus operandi for like the last 20 years. You know, there's just a lot of questions. Having police officers go into your servers without your consent is kind of a big deal. Why wouldn't the FBI just have gotten in touch with the companies that were affected and said, hey, we've discovered this thing. We're working with Microsoft and we want to help you out here. Why would they do it without telling them? I would imagine because the FBI had access to intelligence that they don't feel like making public. There may have been something that was so pressing that there just wasn't the time for them to go and notify these thousands of server owners, because that that process can take months. So there may be some piece of the story that we're just not aware of. So the FBI apparently felt this was important enough to move quickly and to take this unusual step. What does that tell us about the threat here? We've already mentioned that Microsoft has tied this to state-sponsored actors in China. What can we think about what this all means in the bigger picture of security of U.S institutions. You know, periods of government transition are always times during which adversaries test you. They want to push, they want to see what they can get away with. They want to kind of reset the dialogue between the different administrations. And so you've seen kind of aggressive activity from both Russia, China, as well as others. And you can see some of this activity as being an outcropping of that. In general, like the really noisy, brash breaches just weren't happening for a number of years. And now we're seeing the emergence of a more bellicose activity on the part of China, assuming this is China, running a zero-day exploit against servers, running Microsoft Exchange on the internet is going to get people's attention. Because the problem with cyber war and the problem with these digital attacks is that like attribution is really, really hard. And so it is possible that you have a catastrophic event that can't be linked to anyone. And that's just a great way to destabilize an adversary. Joel, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. My pleasure.